Welcome to this episode of Ask a Scientist. My name is Atta Sarajadini. I'm the Dean of the College of Science at Florida Atlantic University. And I have with me Dr. Duto Esiobu, Professor of Biology at Florida Atlantic University. Thank you for being with us, Duto. Thank you, Atta. Before I ask you the questions that uh, our viewers have submitted, uh, I want to start off by talking about what science is and how it works. So in a nutshell, science is a tool we use to better understand the natural world. And how does science actually work? Well, it begins with a question. And we then take data or observations to answer that question. The data and the observations then lead us to an explanation. Another word for explanation is hypothesis or theory. And every good theory or hypothesis makes a prediction. Those predictions are then tested against the observations. If the predictions come true, then the theory or model or, or hypothesis is probably correct. If they don't, then we have to go back and modify the model or hypothesis so that we have predictions that are borne out by the data. And in this way, over time, science is a self-correcting process. And we make models to better understand the natural world. And in this way, the self-correcting process takes hold. Sometimes it can take weeks, months, years, sometimes even centuries for science to come back and uh, redo the model to get a better prediction that then reproduces the natural world. Now, having said all that and showing you what science actually is, I want to bring in Dr. Esiobu to talk about the, the latest coronavirus uh, situation that we have uh, encountered. And to motivate the discussion, I want her first to talk about her research, but also we have a whole host of questions that our viewers have submitted online that I would like to post to her uh, during the interview. So let's begin, Dr. Esiobu, with talking about your research. What, what do you do here at Florida Atlantic University? Thank you very much, Dean Atta. So um, in my applied microbiology lab, we use a wide range of tools, ranging from classic microbiology to genomics to synthetic biology um, to investigate issues that are important in public health, risk assessment, and um, also we work on environmental quality um, assessments and invasion, plant invasion. So there are three major areas of research in my lab. The first one is on public health risk assessment um, using metagenomics. So we get samples from the environment and we ask questions about what is the best indicator of human risks in this environment. So we can in one snapshot look at all of the organisms in the environment, viruses, bacteria, fungi, protozoans, using metagenomic analysis. The second area of research in my lab is to understand how microorganisms drive plant invasion um, and how they influence the aggression of plant invasion in Florida. For example, Florida soils are known to have very low biotic resistance, and we don't know why. So we're using a, a wide variety of tools to investigate that. Um, the other area of research in my lab has to do with synthetic biology, where we use um, synthetic, uh, we create molecules that don't exist, and we use that to simulate what exists in nature to solve problems. For example, we cloned Ebola in a bacterium, so we could use it to study how that virus, nasty virus, causes diseases. I see. Thank you. Uh, now I want to turn to the questions that were submitted online. Uh, with respect to the COVID virus and the, and the current situation. And I want to pose each of those to Dr. Esiobu and give her a chance to answer them. 
and we received quite a uh, number of questions, very interesting ones, in fact, and it was very difficult to pick a subset of all the submitted ones to actually ask. So uh, excuse us if we didn't select your question, but uh, I think these questions really represent the broad range of topics that our, uh, our, view our viewers are interested in. Let me begin by asking Dr. Esiobu uh, something general, which is how are viruses generated? Can you give us a sense of that uh, answer? Yes, indeed, to start with, what is a virus? So a virus is um, a little piece of nucleic acid, like DNA or RNA, that is enclosed in a protein coat. So some people say virus is a piece of bad news in a protein coat. <laughs> and some people think because it's an, a non-living particle that it can just generate by itself. There has been rumors about um, viruses being generated by 5Gs and all that. So a virus truly is a non-living particle. It's an obligate intracellular pathogen, so it can grow inside a cell and make many copies of itself. So how do we generate viruses or how are they generated? We culture them. We use compatible cells to grow them. So a bacterium is used to grow a bacteriophage. An animal cell will be used to grow an animal virus. Plant cells are used to grow plant viruses. So sometimes we create tissue cultures that we use to grow those viruses. So from a scientific perspective, how do we know that these viruses don't just spring up on their own? How do we know that they are not constantly being generated by radiation of some sort? We know because we have grown them in axenic cultures, in pure cultures. So we pick a virus of a known identity and we generate it in a cell and it reproduces itself in a consistent manner. So that tells us that that virus is an entity that is stable. So viruses cannot survive on their own. They have to have some host to, to uh, be inside for yeah. them to reproduce themselves. That is that is how it works? That is exactly true. So, but they carry the blueprint that they normally use to overwhelm the host. Mm -hmm. So they take over the cell system that they infect. <clears throat> they use the ribosomes of the host cell. They use sometimes the enzymes of the host cell to express themselves. But they carry a stable genetic information that directs exactly how they are replicated. So basically, they use the cell's machinery. Precisely to, correct. To, for the purpose of reproducing of themselves. Of replicating themselves. That's the idea. Yeah. And so now that we know what a virus is and how it works, can you tell us about how you find drugs to block viruses and their activity in the cell? That's a very important question, one that is quite pertinent to what is going on right now with COVID-19. In general, antimicrobials, when we search for antimicrobials, there are two things on our minds. Number one is selective toxicity. We want to find a molecule that will selectively kill the, anti, um, uh, the microorganism and spare the host cells. And the next is you want that um, um, molecule to be potent, of course, to be effective against the organism, one that cannot be easily resisted because you can't shave a person's hair and expect the person to die. So we normally target um, components, cell components, or components of the molecule, of the uh, virus that would make it die. So how do we look for new drugs? Two approaches in general. The first, I would call serendipity, where we take old 
drugs, such as the uh, chloroquine and others that have been in use in circulation, and you try to tweak them. You add a methyl group, you adjust them with a hydroxyl group, a phenol group. You modify those using chemistry, and then you test them in the lab. And, the, and after the in vitro testing, you go on to do some clinical testing. So that's one approach, and sometimes that takes a very long time. What has shortened the current um, approach now is synthetic biology, where we can use computers and artificial intelligence to look at the molecules of the virus, to look at something that's unique about that virus and target that particular structure. So currently, for COVID-19, we're targeting the uh, non-structural protein number 12, which is the enzyme that this virus uses to make copies of itself. So there are drugs that are now being tried to inhibit that enzyme. It doesn't exist in the human system, so the drug will be selectively toxic against the virus. I think it's interesting that because of synthetic biology, we can use AI to simulate the impact of these changes to the to the drugs to see if they'll be effective or not, Ex rather than doing clinical trials, which could take years, I suppose. Exactly, Donata, you're exactly right. Um, that is what has shortened the normal time it takes to develop a drug. Mm -hmm. The time it takes to develop a drug runs, some people say 18 months, but that is being very optimistic. It runs sometimes multiple years. To get an antibiotic, for instance, in the past would take 15 years. But now with synthetic biology, mm -hmm. we can reverse engineer things. We can use artificial intelligence to study the molecule, test many different, you can even do a preliminary screening using your computers. And then after that, you narrow down the number you want to test and it increases your chances of getting a positive hit. Mm, very interesting. Um, as we go down the list of questions, the, the next one I'm, I'm sure many are, are interested in with respect to the future of, of this virus and the epidemic. And one of our uh, viewers asked, uh, when would this epidemic end and what would the aftermath of this look like? Can you address that? I wish someone knew for sure. I am not sure anybody knows exactly when this pandemic will end. So there have been uh, many models and the models keep changing. That's somewhat like a hypothesis in the scientific world. In the lab, we make a hypothesis and then we test it. And then we make predictions, test those predictions. And if they don't match, we go back and test again, just like the Dean said. You may have observed that the scientists in the task force and around the country have been making projections. They've been making predictions as to when this uh, epidemic or this pandemic will be over. And each time they get new data, they plug that in and adjust it. So having said that, I think the short answer to that question is that nobody knows for sure mm -hmm. when this epidemic will end. Nobody knows for sure, yes. And I like the fact that you uh, made the point of noting that a lot of it is based on the models, and the models are designed to explain the, the data, the, the observations, and they're continually refining the models. And every time they refine the model to get a better prediction, you know, it changes the prediction itself. That's exactly so correct. That's the nature of how, how science works. Um, and then along those lines also, Dr. Esiobu, um, one of our viewers also asked, how does a pandemic become endemic? And can you talk about that and how the, that change happens? Yes, so and just quickly before I answer that, um, the uh, previous question asked about 
what will be the aftermath of this current pandemic? I didn't address that. I'm hoping that at the end of all of this, which I'm hoping will be soon, the end will come in soon, that there will be greater emphasis in training the appropriate workforce. I'm hoping there will be much more money given for scholarships for my students because they are the workforce, the skilled workforce, that do all the testing. People talk about testing, test kits, testing, and a lot of money is given to, to the private sector, rightfully so. But money should also be given to the College of Science, for example, <laughs> to train the people to operate these. We hear that they have a lot of test kits out there and no one to operate them. My students are routinely trained in RT-PCR, which is what is being used to detect this um, virus, for example. So I hope in the aftermath that there'll be more money pumped into research and into training students. Well, you make a good point, which is that much of the work we do in the College of Science uh, trains students for practical applications Such as of, of, their, of their lab work. So, uh, and, and it's very important to prepare the, you know, the next generation of, of workers, if you will, to uh, be, be prepared to make these uh, tests work and operate them in the proper way. So that's what you're talking about. Yes, indeed. It's very important. So next, to the, uh, next question was about um, how does a pandemic become an endemic disease? So a pandemic disease is one that has it's an outbreak of global proportions, and a disease that breaks out in multiple countries at the same time or around about the same time. So um, we've had many pandemics in the past. So it is the scale and the timing of the spread of the disease that makes it a pandemic. An endemic disease, on the other hand, is one that is always present in a given community. So you can predict, for example, with some certainty, um, the level or scale of outbreak. For instance, chickenpox has become endemic in some countries. Mumps is endemic in South Florida. Malaria is endemic in West Africa. So this disease is, these diseases are always there in the population. So the question is, really, if you put it the other way around, is how would a pandemic become an endemic? So that would happen with time, with vaccination, which builds herd immunity, and when people have gotten ill and recovered. So three things would make a pandemic become endemic. And I could easily see COVID-19 over time, two, three, four years time, becoming endemic in the population. I see. One of our viewers also asked the following question. And before I read it, let me just uh, hearken back to what you were talking about earlier about how a virus works, which, uh, which you said that a virus basically hijacks the machinery in the cell uh, to produce uh, re re reproductions of its own DNA. And so the question is, the question that um, this, this person asked is, uh, through that process, can the virus or its DNA be integrated into the genome of the cell so that there's later reactivation of the, um, of the virus itself, of, of, of how it damages the cell? Is there any way that uh, the virus's DNA is worked into that of the cell and then later reactivated after the virus has you know, has, we, after there's no more effects from the virus. Wonderful. So there are seven classes of viruses. We divide them up on the basis of the nature of their nucleic acids. 
whether it be DNA or RNA, and whether it's double-stranded or single-stranded. The COVID virus, for example, the COVID-19, is an, a single-stranded plus RNA virus. Now, how these viruses replicate or behave in their host is determined primarily by the nature of their genome. The HIV, for example, is an RNA virus that converts itself into a DNA and then integrates into the human chromosome in the nucleus. So that then it becomes a provirus in its host. Now, so in that case, it has a retrovirus, uh, a retrotranscriptase enzyme, reverse transcriptase enzyme that it uses to convert itself from an RNA to a DNA. Not all viruses can do that. In fact, only members of the lentivirus can do it. So the COVID, current COVID-19 is an RNA virus. It stays outside the nucleus. In fact, when a virus is getting into a cell, it feels exactly the same way you feel when you're landing into the airport and you look out from the window. You can see the entire city and you're landing. So the virus can see the nucleus far away. So only specialized viruses can make their way into the host nucleus and integrate into the chromosome. The COVID-19 certainly does not do that. It survives in the cytoplasm. It makes a little surrounding, what we call that endosome, where it makes copies of itself. So not all viruses can integrate and then reactivate. Now, with respect to chickenpox, which eventually reactivates um, when it causes latent diseases. It's the herpes viride family. They all do that. So they go into cells where they don't replicate. They just remain silent. And then when the host is like stressed out or immunocompromised for one reason or the other, then they emerge from those cells and infect neighboring cells where they can replicate. And that's what's called the reactivation <clears throat> of the shingles when you have shingles as a reactivation of chickenpox, not because the virus integrated into the genome of the host, mm -hmm. but because it took up residence in cells where it could hide from the host immune system, and then it switches off replication for a while, mm. so it's silent. That's why people have herpes. From time to time, they would have a reactivation like a blister, and then it would go away, mm -hmm. and then it comes up back again. So there are persistent latent virus infections. That's how those work. It sounds like these viruses are sneaky little uh, Incredibly en so. entities. Do we know what turns on and off their, you know, the, the, their presence, their activity in the cell? Uh, you said they re remain latent for a while, then their activity turns on again. Yes. Do we know what does that? Indeed. So for the herpes viridae who do this a lot, like the one that causes her um, herpes simplex and all mm -hmm. those, it goes These are in, the cold it takes, sores. Yes, mean. the cold oh. sores. It takes up residence in neuronal cells, in neural okay. cells. In those cells, it doesn't have a transcriptome that it, it needs to make copies of itself. Mm -hmm. So it migrates there, finds a receptor, and goes in. So it remains latent. Mm -hmm. And the host doesn't want to attack its own neuronal cells. So it is spared. Mm -hmm. However, when the host is stressed out, there are changes in the hormonal levels mm. of the host, and that triggers those immuno, um, neural cells to release it, to die, and, and, and it will emerge and go down the dorsal 
nerve right. route. And then it creates that shingles belt and rash right. that you see. Right. Right. So it begins to multiply. So when it exits those neural cells, it goes into epithelial cells. In those cells, it's got everything it needs to multiply. Mm. And then it begins to grow again. Right. Well, it sounds like we can have a whole course on this topic. Of course, there's a lot of information here. Indeed. Yes. And, uh, and I'm sure that the folks listening and, and, and watching are uh, fascinated by all these topics. And of course, you know, there's a lot here that people can follow up on. And we don't have enough time to go through everything. But I want to get back to the questions that were posed by, our, uh, by uh, folks online. And uh, the next one has to do with another sort of modern issue, which is that of climate change. And this uh, person's asking, um, how are viruses similar to COVID-19 or others are projected to change or increase over time as the rate of climate change increases? Can you address that? Yes, indeed. So the key features associated with climate change are the following. Number one, extended summers, um, heavy downpour, erratic and extreme weather conditions, sea level rise as well. So the question is, how will these things affect viruses and their emergence? Um, we know that as environmental conditions change and swing, that these viruses mutate in response. There are spontaneous mutations that occur. When you have extended summers, for example, elevated temperatures, other viruses, which are viruses that are transmitted by insects, would have a feast. They have a an elongated time to uh, celebrate. So these vectors are more in the environment and the transmission will be much higher. Also, when you have extended summers or extended warm temperatures, wild animals tend to replicate even more. And these animals are the reservoirs of the viruses that we see, such as the COVID-19. So you can actually say that, indeed, climate change could have impacts. And in, there have been cases in the past where climate change led to outbreaks, like mm. the West Nile uh, epidemic that happened in, in the southern part of the U.S. in the 19th century it was caused by extended warm periods from El Nino. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we had mosquitoes and floods all over the place that transmitted the West Nile virus. So they are intricately related. Yes. I see. Right. Certainly, the way uh, you're talking about it and your example of West Nile certainly indicates, yes, they're very closely related. So it bears watching the uh, impact of climate change on the viruses. Um, our next question um, is also a bit more general. Uh, and this person's asking, what are the knowns and known unknowns uh, related to Arctic permafrost thaw? So is there any uh, impact there on future COVID-19 activity or just virus activity in general? Um, I think one thing we know for sure about all of these things is that there will never be an end to the emergence of new pathogens because the environment constantly changes, human behaviors change, urbanization also, extensive deforestation is happening, industrialization, many new products are being pumped into the environment. So these viruses will continue to change and to mutate. That's one thing we know for sure. We also know that there will be pandemics in the future. No one can predict how soon or how far away that would be. Um, so some people say, okay, somebody was warned or some people were warned about pandemics, especially the COVID-19, but that's like predicting that the sun will rise tomorrow. 
<laughs> that doesn't tell you quite what will happen tomorrow. So indeed, we know for sure that there'll be pandemics. Now, what, what don't we know? The direction of the mutation. For a long time, scientists expected a pandemic to happen in the flu virus group, the orthomyxoviridae, because those viruses are segmented and they can easily shuffle their genomes. So everyone was expecting a pandemic from that group. And that never really happened. It came from another group of viruses, the coronaviruses. And so we can't predict with certainty which virus is going to cause the next um, pandemic. But it's important to have a good, solid healthcare system and infrastructure to cope with any when they come. Well, um, so we've had a variety of questions and a whole range of different topics. And I, I want to thank the the, the folks out there on the, in the cyber world for submitting them. Uh, this is our last one, and it's somewhat of a, a, a hypothetical question. And um, this person would like to know, is there a case to be made for long-term indefinite quarantine due to future viral projections and climate change? That's the elephant in the room. Testing, 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 so that we can all come out. Well, I don't think there is a case to be made. And I don't think that testing is the solution to everything. Come to think about it from a scientist's angle. If you test someone and the individual tests positive, then they go to work. But what then happens if the next virus mutates or even if this particular virus changes? What happens? We go back on a lockdown? Now, what if you test a person and the test is negative. So what? You lock the individual down for a prolonged period of time? No. So um, the, shut, the lockdown we had was necessary and useful to flatten the curve. In other words, slow the rate of transmission to allow us prepare. And as soon as that is done, I think that we should all open up and go back to work. Continuous lockdown will prevent us from building herd immunity and we would live to fight again in the future. So I think the sooner we're let go to go out and confront this virus, the human immune system is potent, is powerful. At least 85% of people tested already um, have the immunity. The serology test shows. Uh, so I think that we shouldn't be locked down for six months or beyond. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Esiobu. I wanna uh, thank you for being here for our, our interview and answering all these very diverse and in some cases challenging questions. And I want to also just ask the, the viewers and listeners to go on our website and fill out the feedback form. We'd love to hear what you think about these podcasts and this particular interview. The website is science.fau.edu. And there's a feedback form there for Ask a Scientist. And we would love to hear your opinions on the podcasts and this interview. Thank you very much for watching and listening. <laughs>